Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Today, we'll hear how music can inform different aspects of one's identity. The Indigo Girls' recent recording, Look Long, came out in late May. The entire album tells a story from bittersweet memories of childhood to calls for social action and ultimate understanding of what once seemed irreconcilable. The song Country Radio reveals a love for that music, but feeling excluded from it because of homophobia. Emily Saliers and Amy Ray The Indigo Girls will take us through the new album later in the program. First, an acclaimed opera singer explains his move from the stage to the kitchen. Alexander Smalls is a classically trained musician who became a renowned professional opera singer. He is also a chef, restaurateur, and cookbook author. Mr. Smalls will appear at the Decatur Book Festival to discuss his new volume, Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African-American Kitchen. He joins us now via Zoom. Alexander Smalls, welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Please explain why you believe that in the U.S., food and music are inextricably linked, especially in African-American culture. Well, you know, it is a cultural expression that permeates the entire spectrum of the African-American life, the landscape of essentially how we live life through the lens of our colorful culture, our rhythmic uh, music, our expression of food from garden to pot to plate. Um, It has always been, especially for me, the two disciplines that have shaped and molded who I am as an adult. Music was there to help me cultivate a sense of belonging and also to create a fanciful life. And food was their ultimate pleasure. But, you know, as a kid, I spent a lot of time with my grandfather, who was a city farmer and had a large garden. And I would work that garden. Now, I had no interest in working my mother's flower plants, (laughs) especially the rose bushes. But I would get my hands in that dirt and plant some seeds and and, uh, take care of some tomatoes and butter beans, squash and watermelons. I loved it. And then that transition that happened from the garden to the pot, to the plate. And music was the backdrop for all of it. Wonderful. You you write that far beyond food-inspired tunes, such as beans and cornbread, one of my favorite, or pepper pot and grits and groceries, 
In the African-American cultural canon, food and music served a dual purpose. Would you further elaborate? <laughs> I think I answered both questions at once. <laughs> but, you know, I, I mean, the subject for me is an endless soundtrack of my life. And this is why the book Nails, Music and Muses really was so gifted for me at this time, having written three books, having had a, a, a number of careers, you know, I look back at how the music and the food created every container for all of my experiences in life and continue to. I mean, I, I essentially, I opened my first restaurant to take my kitchen public to essentially feed and serve and nurture the world. So it is an ongoing theme that resonates with me strongly personally, but I feel particularly with the African-American uh, community. I mean, the two were so accessible, you know, because you could make up a tune and clap your hands and, 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 and slap your hip and hum your way to glory if you needed to. <laughs> and if you had something good to eat on that, on that journey, it made it even better. <laughs> oh, I have to say, your laugh is, is such a wonderful reflection of that joy and definitely the laugh of a trained opera singer. <laughs> when did you first realize you wanted to explore the food of the African diaspora? Well, you know, um, uh, it started as a child um, without any consciousness that I was planting the seeds to really dive into the concept of food as lore and history and, and a tale, if you will. I grew up in Spartanburg, South Carolina, already a transplant from the family's foundational birthplace, which was Charleston and Beaufort in the Gullah Islands. And when my grandfather moved the family to Spartanburg, which was maybe three and a half hours away, we took all of our customs. So none of my friends ate the food that I ate. Their food was more Piedmont, Appalachia, but it wasn't as defined as Gullah Geechee cuisine, that low country food that exists in the, in the perimeter of Charleston, Savannah, the Gullah Islands. And so I knew that we were different <laughs> just by what we ate and how we cooked and how we prepared. And my grandfather would lead us, oh, every uh, few months back to Charleston in a car caravan. And we would, you know, go there periodically, taking things to family members down there. But coming back with moss from the Gullah country, hanging from the Remember when we had antennas as kids on cars and we put moss in the back window and there would be crates of live crab and, and there would be oysters and all of these things, produce that my, my family would bring back from there. And then there would be this big, not really a party, but it turns into a party because the music is playing and we're in the backyard with the newspaper on the picnic table and boiling crab in the big black pot outside in the backyard and a table picking crab, everyone was picking crabs. And, and it would be this incredible ritualist gathering that always stayed with me. So as I developed and went through my classical training and my classical career performing, you know, throughout Europe, and I came to the point where I understood that what I wanted to do Actually, what happened really is that I hit the glass ceiling, if you will, as a black male opera singer, not able to move into the next level. I had sung in the opera houses uh, throughout Europe, Paris, Rome, Germany, at Frankfurt. So after singing all over Europe, coming back to America, auditioning, trying to break through, particularly at the Metropolitan Opera House, I finally decided that Whatever I was going to do professionally, I had to not only own a seat at the table, I needed to own the table. And that propelled me to open my first restaurant. 18 months after that disastrous 
last audition, I began to develop the foundation and building out my first restaurant, Cafe Beulah, in New York City, which was 1993, I believe. Gosh, it's so mind-boggling. That wasn't so long ago. And yet I was interviewing Morris Robinson, wonderful opera singer who lives in Atlanta. We are blessed with, oh gosh, a, a whole group of internationally acclaimed singers who happen to live in Atlanta. And Morris was talking about why he did not take on the role of Porky until 2016. And he only did that because La Scala came calling for just the reason you said he wanted to make sure that he could get enough roles under his belt so that he wouldn't be typecast and Porgy wouldn't be the only opera for which he'd be considered. But just in that generation between you, there were many more roles available to him. Yes. I mean, uh, and, and he is a fine singer. I had the pleasure of hosting him at my Supper Club, Richard Parsons and I reopened Minton Playhouse in 2013 in New York. And one of the patrons of the Met bought out the club to have a private evening with Morris. You can imagine how special that was. And as the executive chef, I created a meal that complemented uh, that very special evening. So bravo to him. And he was very wise to make those choices Unfortunately, I didn't have those choices available to me because essentially it was Old Man River or it was Porgy and Bess in the United States. And I remember when the Houston Grand Opera came calling and offered me the role of Jake. Uh, I was a young grad student at the Curtis Institute of Music in Philadelphia. I had this amazing teacher from Israel and she was extraordinarily happy for me, but also afraid for me. And she said, I will give my blessings for you to take off with the Houston Grand Opera and have this experience. But let's say it will be two to three months and you come back. And I said, yes, of course. Well, two and a half years later. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, when you take uh, the boy out of the country and show him Paris and show him Frankfurt and Berlin and Rome and London, it's hard to put a stop to that. Oh, yes. And a Grammy you did not mention. Oh, gosh. You know, all of that that came with that moment. You know, I was so young and so impressionable. I didn't realize that in that moment, I was also essentially writing my fate. And it was, while it was the debut, it was also the the kind of finale, if you will, of my classical career. I mean, after Porgy, I I did a lot of recital work, stuff like that. Like many uh, black male opera singers who moved to Europe so they could sing the classical music, I chose to move to Europe to study and also do recital work, but not opera, because the opera houses of Europe, particularly the ones in Germany, would exhaust the singers. I mean, they would literally come home with no voices and no opportunity to move into the possibility of large opera companies here. So it was a, it was a difficult and demanding time. And I simply decided that I needed to change vehicles. My two great loves was food and music. So I got out of one car and, and got into the <laughs> other one. <laughs> and I hit the gas pedal. <laughs> Cookbook author, chef, and renowned opera singer Alexander Smalls discussing his new book, Meals, Music, and Muses recipes from my african-american kitchen we'll be back with more after a short break 
You're listening to WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Let's return to my interview with the acclaimed opera singer, restaurateur, and cookbook author, Chef Alexander Smalls. His new cookbook is Meals, Music, and Muses, Recipes from My African American Kitchen. He'll be in virtual conversation with the editor of Local Palette, Leah Grabowski, as part of the Decatur Book Festival this evening at 6.30. Chapter 4 of the new book is titled Opera, and all of the recipes in that section are for fish and seafood. I asked Alexander Smalls if that was his personal tribute to the opera Porgy and Bess, which is set in a poor community of fishermen in Charleston. Fish row, you know? Yes, without question, this was my moment to, I mean, Porgy and Bess, extremely dear to me for all the right reasons. It was a low country Charleston moment, reminded me so much of my grandfather and my ancestors, my cousins and great aunts and uncles who had, you know, little farms in the low country when I was a boy. And I, re I remember the street vendors who peddled their goods. Uh, and so, yeah, I wanted to create an ambiance to not only celebrate that, but also raise the consciousness of the bounty of the land from that particular part of the world. I was intrigued with how the title of Chapter 5 pertains to the recipes that follow. <laughs> I have a weakness for divas, <laughs> and, and I have a weakness for opening nights and meat and chicken. <laughs> I have known some extraordinary um, divas, been blessed to you know, be in their company, be a part of their stories and listen to their stories. One of the great phenomenons of, of divas that I have known um, and shared company range from Leontine Price to Kathleen Battle, Jesse Norman, Martina Aurora, uh, you know, Shirley Barrett. I was able to really engage all of them. And then you go to the Divas of Jazz with Dee Dee Bridgewater, you know, and um, uh, 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 you have these women who created so much artistry. This chapter was about putting it on a plate, if you will. My personal relationship with Luciano Pavarotti in my youth and, you know, sharing a love for food. We once cooked together and I used to babysit his daughters when they would come to New York. You know, so 
and he's a diva. He was a diva for I sure. I should say. <laughs> what what did you cook with Pavarotti? Oh wow, seafood. I mean, you know, uh, seafood and pasta. You know, he's Italian. I lived in Rome for three years. I was his assistant, mind you. I was the prep chef, and this also was before I became a bona fide chef restaurateur. I was still a young opera singer getting my wings, but a tremendous love for food as he did. In fact, Luciano introduced me to strawberry ice cream with a balsamic glaze. Ooh, so he way ahead of his time with uh, the savory and sweet. The book contains a curated set of recipes which you describe as a playlist of essential African-American dishes. In fact, the appendix to this book contains playlists for each chapter, which I loved. And I wondered which came first, the playlists from which you decided the recipes or music that you thought would go well with those recipes? Well, the food came first. I mean, no question or pause. I curated my kitchen offerings. And, and again, you know, it was a wonderful opportunity to make something very personal. I mean, this is my third cookbook, and it was my opportunity to curate recipes that I felt were signature pieces to my Southern landscape. And so I created the recipes first, and then they were the inspiration for the music that I tied to each chapter. And the playlists cover such a wonderful range of styles for people who may be intimidated by opera singer. I must assure readers, listeners, not to worry, you will have your fair share of all genres. I love the way you compare a well-stocked pantry to a jukebox. How are they similar? Well, you know, you have to have, you know, your ingredients on hand, whether that's to make a dish or to create a musical moment. When I was a kid, my father had a nightclub called the Hilltop House, and uh, it was literally on the hill. <laughs> and on weekends, particularly Sundays after Sunday dinner on the side porch, he would gather me and my friends uh, who were willing, and most everybody was willing, and he would lock us into the nightclub with the task of, you know, you can play the jukebox, he would put it on free play, so we didn't have to put any money in it, and we could act out and play in the club, but we had to clean it, too. <laughs> there is no so, such thing as a free jukebox. Huh? No, <laughs> much like a free ride. So, we would rush to clean that thing to, uh, to perfection so we could spend all the time on the stage with the jukebox going and the turned off mic pretending to be stars. <laughs> oh, so uh, years before karaoke, you were there. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> you quote, the legendary chef Alice Waters of Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, regarding another culinary great, Chef Edna Lewis. What, mm. what was the legacy of Chef Edna Lewis? Well, you know, Edna Lewis was the first Alice Waters. Edna Lewis truly branded, crafted, brought to view farm to table. She was uh, an extraordinarily gifted woman. Aside from her cooking, she was an incredible seamstress as well, as well as my mother actually. Uh, but Edna brought literally the farm experience into the kitchen, into the dining room in a unique way that even Alice Waters had to give her her due. She was a pioneer and she was essentially the face of the African-American kitchen. 
extraordinary woman. I had the opportunity to meet and know her. Also my, my late uncle Joe, who was a chef here in Harlem many, many years prior, when Edna Lewis was, was here as well. And my aunt, who was a classical pianist, would talk about this woman when I was a kid. And so to grow up and then meet her and then be inspired by her truly was a gift. It must have been extraordinary for you. In your acknowledgments, you write, tracing the steps of our ancestral people, we fused together a culinary conversation in the kitchen. Alexander Smalls, thank you for this culinary conversation. Thank you for having me, letting me sit at your table, and I've enjoyed it. <laughs> uh, as have I. And I do hope, after the plague, to visit one of your wonderful restaurants in Harlem. You'd be most welcome. Alexander Smalls will be in conversation with the editor of Local Palette, Leah Grabowski, on September 8th as part of the virtual AJC Decatur Book Festival. The Indigo Girls, the music duo of Emily Saliers and Amy Ray, are brilliant storytellers. And that gift is on vivid display in their new album, Look Long. We are fortunate to have them join us now via Zoom. Emily, Amy, welcome back to City Light. Thanks, Lois. You know we love you. Thanks for having us. Oh, it's just a privilege, especially as I know you are both taking the time to deal with homeschooling your kids and family life, along with very active music careers. This new album tells a story beginning with bittersweet memories of childhood growing pains to calls for social action, ultimately finding its way to understanding what once seemed irreconcilable emotions and experiences. I was wondering, were the songs in this album created as a set with a narrative in mind, or were they written independent from one another? They were written independent from one another. I think um, you can say that Amy and I spend a lot of time together, so we're experiencing some of the same things at the same time, although we see through our unique and individual lens and write songs from that perspective, but also, you know, being at the same sort of age range in life and just reflecting on these things. But luckily all the songs when they were put together uh, had commonalities and uh, sort of threads that joined them all together. And then we thought that Look Long was the title that encapsulated some of that cohesion that happened, but it, it wasn't a plan. They just, they, these were the songs that ended up together. Well, it works beautifully as a narrative. And I guess having been together as a duo for what, 31 years now? Yeah, let's see, since night, well, we've, <laughs> it might be longer. I mean, we started playing in, in high school in at DeKalb, in DeKalb County at Shamrock High School at the time. And it was 1980. Yeah, you go back as friends 40 years, um, the saying about finishing each other's sentences. I guess as friends and creatives, you do that with one another, and maybe that's why all the songs seem to fit together as a narrative. Amy, I read that the musical inspiration for the first song on the album came from an instrument you discovered in Emily's basement. Would you tell us about it? Yeah, I had written this song and um, Emily and I had gotten together in her basement at her house to like start working on arrangements. And I saw 
this acoustic guitar sitting in the guitar stand that I had never seen. I thought I knew all Emily's instruments. And I just said, what is that? That looks like a great guitar. And it was a Martin, old Martin set up for a slide. So for acoustic slide. And so she got it out and it became really the musical centerpiece of the song. And that song opens the album. Well, I had written Kickin' and it was really a song about growing up and spending time up in Hartwell, Georgia, Lake Hartwell near Livonia and hanging out at this farmer's house. And he let us ride his horses and we had dirt bikes up there and, you know, just kind of the invasion of the suburban nights into the agricultural area to have our lake culture, basically. But I, you know, Emily, I wanted it to be this kind of swampy Southern, I don't know, kind of a romp, but with a slow groove. And so Emily and I were trying to figure out, you know, what should she play on guitar? You know, what instrument? And when we got together at her house, I saw this guitar I had never seen, but it had been set up to play slide guitar on. And I had never, I mean, I know most of Emily's guitars, so I, I was very surprised to see it. And the sound was so perfect for the song that it kind of helped me envision the whole thing and, and you know, made the core, the centerpiece of the song acoustically. And then we ended up making sure we flew over with that instrument. We didn't take many instruments to England with us to record with because we wanted to save money, but we definitely took that one with us. Let's talk about country radio. This song reveals a complex relationship with the genre of country music. Would you talk about the lyrics? Well, I wrote country radio after I, I, I spent a lot of time in Nashville. I liked the drive um, from Atlanta to Nashville and back home. Always on the way back home, I listen to country music from the time I leave the city until the time I get back to Atlanta. And I love country music. I really, really love the voices of country singers. I love the well-crafted songs. But the truth is that those songs are written by men and women, you know, largely and primarily by men and women about the stories of men and women. And so I found myself wanting to live inside these songs, but I couldn't relate it to my own life because, you know, being queer separated me from that. And so I really got this wistful feeling inside sometimes as I listened to these songs and and couldn't fit my own story into them. And so I decided to uh, write a song about that feeling. And I put the character as a, a gay kid in a small town and described all of those feelings that I myself had. I work at the mall food court. And when I get home, I fix something to eat, settle into my seat, and turn on the country radio. I know every word to every song And they make these lonely nights a little less long Cause then I'm under the stars, regular at the bar Got a perfect girl, I got a warning truck We go down to the river and the moonlight is silver sad to read that you have addressed self-homophobia in your own life. How is that evident in these lyrics? Well, I think from my own experience, 
you know, I was not immune to societal voices saying you're a sinner. I didn't believe I was a sinner. I never had any relationship problems, my faith relationship or with my parents or my family, but the societal implications and loud voices that you're a sinner or you're not valid, you should be fired from your job. You don't count as much. Something's wrong with you. All those things, I was not ever strong enough to not take them in somehow into my psyche. I think a lot of queer people deal with this and it's gotten better through the years, but you know, in the song, it talks about passing the, you see those placards and there's sort of like little marquee things with messages in front of churches. And I've seen ones that are totally homophobic and you sort of, I drive by it and take that in and, and that's included in the song. And it's really, it's about a person daydreaming that they're that boy about to get married or with the, with the truck or with the pretty girl, or they're that girl whose dream is coming true, getting married or having this love relationship. And so all those things are, it's very, very difficult was for me to overcome that self homophobia of you're not as valid a human being and you're the milestones in your life don't count the same way they do for straight people. So obviously it's an illness that has to be healed and it takes time, but there is a lot of that in the song. In fact, many of your songs deal with the acceptance of individuality in a world that celebrates conformity or demands it. What is another song on this album that illustrates that theme? Well, the first song that came to mind was Muster, even though it's about those kids standing up against the gun reality in America and the, the common Second Amendment raise the flag type argument. Yeah, I guess, but like for personal conformity, maybe how the moon, you know, deals with trying to encourage everybody to have their own liberation and looking to the elders for that, looking to kids for that and just saying, you know, we all need to be free from our, whatever the chains are that bind us and, and celebrate ourselves and be liberated. I mean, you know, Emily and I, I think in our lyrics, you can probably find examples of that in almost any song, because I think it's something that we, it's kind of a main agenda, if you will, for us, like is to encourage people to not worry about conforming in any way, you know, and not have to, you can be, you know, it doesn't, whatever your political persuasion is, whatever you are, you know, all the things that you make up who you are, just, celebrate them and be yourself and and respect yourself and respect other people and that's how we get along in the world you know and i think we we encourage our audience to you know be themselves and be strong in that and not you know just it's you know let this this a light of mine i'm gonna let it shine i mean that's a basic message yeah you know i think a lot of our songs you can find little lyrics and here and there that that will say things like that because it's kind of a central idea with us 
You do it with so much grace. I mean, when you were talking about the suburbanites invading Lake Hartwell, you speak about being an interloper. And it shows such a depth of thought, even with people whom you not only see as very different from yourselves, but who may hold beliefs that are hurtful to you, you're always considering the other point of view. I mean, I grew up in a family where that you had to do that because we, in my extended family and, and in my own family, there were a lot of differences of, you know, of view about society. And some of them were very conservative and, you know, and growing up in the South, I mean, you always have to consider the other point of view. It's a complex place and you don't want to lose your ability to talk to one another and to be neighbors and to love one another. And you have to realize when you are an interloper in someone else's space and their way of life, regardless of what you think of that way of life or what they think of yours. The reality is you, they built a lot of lakes, you know, all over the United States when they dammed up a lot of rivers to make power and which could be a good thing, but also those areas that were once, you know, these agricultural havens and became sort of the playground of the, of the wealthy. And so <laughs> I think about that, you know, and I mean, it's like the movie deliverance, you know, it's, it's a, it's something you think about a lot. I think when you live in an area like we do. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, talking with Amy Ray and Emily Saliers, the Indigo Girls, about their album, Look Long, which was released in May. The new album seamlessly integrates a number of genres into the style of folk rock music that we have loved, your fans have loved for many years now. Favorite flavor is particularly inventive in that regard. Were you consciously paying tribute to any particular styles or did different influences just kind of bubble up as you were writing this? Uh, I think when I wrote, when I wrote that song, it was just kind of, I was sitting with my kid in, in our studio and we were jamming actually. And that is kind of what came out of what we were doing. She finished the song and was trying to think about production because Emily and I didn't have an arrangement for it. John Reynolds had created this beat that worked really well and it immediately made me think of the B-52s. I wanted it to be wacky, you know, because the message in it is kind of hardcore and I wanted the music to feel kind of wacky and, you know, and celebratory, you know, and um, so I could have like lyrics sitting in it that were harder to think about. And um Definitely paying, tipping the hat to B-52s, no, no doubt about it. I mean, what a great Georgia band. So, and they created their whole own style, you know, and so we definitely were tipping our hat to them. Well, it is so much fun. The title song, Look Long, is beautifully sung, and the lyrics seem densely poetic, a reference to Grandfather's Telescope, through the scope on starry nights we saw forever. And in the morning, Florida's sun, I burned the grass with my magnifying glass. How did you decide that this would be the title song of the album? 
Well, I, one of the hardest things about making an album is uh, naming it. And we always make the decision in, in the 11th hour, you know, but it's, it's often quite handy to pick uh, the title of a song. At least it tells the story of that song. And because given the fact that the, these are a cohesive bunch of songs, it, it really, a Amy thought about using that as the title. And it did have obviously so much to do with history and perspective and short-term vision, long-term vision and things like that. So it was uh, in the end a fitting title. The text of many of your songs are especially meaningful in this new age of social distancing, life during pandemic. For example, sorrow and joy are not oil and water. Has anything about the album changed? Does anything land differently for you? as we've settled into this extraordinary new way of living? It's a great question. I think sometimes it takes a while for the songs to have their lives and, and you start to live into them, even if you've written them at a different point in time. And because I think that Amy and I write a lot about people and how we relate to each other and how important histories are and uh, communication and uh, the earth and things like that. It might be that any group of songs could could take its place during a pandemic and speak to it in some way, you know? It wasn't as if the songs were prescient in, in, in any way, I don't think, but sitting with them and, and living in them, I mean, sorrow and joy is definitely, I feel like right now, not only in this country, but globally, there's a collective grieving, sadness, you know, tremendous grief over the loss of life and how things, some things have been irreparably changed. And then along with that, finding everybody has their, you know, their hopeful spirits or their, the ways that they've found things within their families or their chosen families or whatever it is uh, that brings them hope and a little bit of joy. So I think holding darkness and light, which is, you know, a clunky way to put it, but it's what that song talks about, sorrow and joy. And I think that that's definitely something that's going on, um, obviously, during the time of the pandemic. I understand that a movie is in the works. <laughs> Please tell us about the Indigo Girls documentary plans. Well, so far, we, we have, so we have an, an incredible group of people who approached us 
about making a documentary. And we've, you know, had a, other people approach from time, time and again, and it's never felt right or not the right time or whatever, but these folks were, the producer is an old friend of ours and has made a lot of great films. And the director made a great movie that won a lot of awards um, a couple years ago at Sundance and other places. Um, she made a movie called On Her Shoulders, Alexandria Bomback about a Yazidi woman and everything she went through. And so she wanted to be the director and, and writer and Jessica Devaney and Kathleen Horan as the producers. And then they have a great crew. And we just, we don't know what it's about. We basically just said like, yeah, we can do this, but we don't want it to focus just on us. We want to kind of try to focus it on the context and our fans and kind of the communities around us. And I, I don't know if they're really taking that to heart or not, but they're working on it and they've been filming things off and on for a couple of years and, or like a year and a half, but I'm not sure what's going on now because, you know, the pan they were going to be on tour with us filming our tour. Mm -hmm. And um, now this, this is happening and we haven't really done anything around the pandemic and what's going on right now. So I'm not sure what they're thinking that we were due to have a meeting soon, but um, the, the director has been, I think, holed up in like a closet editing the movie for about three months or something to see what she has so far. I just want to end by thanking you and to borrow a phrase and turn it around. You could not get any closer to fine. I think you two are way beyond fine. You're amazing. Emily Sellers, Amy Ray, thank you so very much. Thank you, Lois. We, we, love, we really love you so much. We're big fans of yours. I can't wait to give you both a hug when we can do it without seeing each other on screens. Same here. Emily Saliers and Amy Ray, the Indigo Girls. Their new album, Look Long, is out now. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily celebration of Atlanta arts and culture. We'll be back tomorrow at 11 a.m. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. Thanks for listening to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org slash donate and become a member right now. And thank you.